Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Take Off with John Clark, and it is Sixers playoff time. It all starts against the Nets, and who better to talk about this? The guy just keeps crushing it on ESPN with his breakdowns. Tim Legler joining us. How you doing, Legs? John, I'm doing well. I am, I am glad and relieved as an NBA analyst that we're finally at this point because this has been a grind with all these injuries and these guys missing time this year. It's been tough to figure this out, but for the most part, the league is healthy, and you're going to see now the best players in the world playing as hard as they can. So I can't wait to start covering these playoff games. Well, I got to tell you, Tim, before we get into the Sixers, everybody loves your basketball coverage and your breakdowns here in the Delaware Valley. A couple months ago, I was actually walking around, and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Tim Legler, how are you? And <laughs> I didn't want to disappoint and tell him I'm John Clark, so I'm just like, I'm doing good. How are you? <laughs> you should have you should have just immediately on the spot just pulled out your iPad and done a touch screen real quick. That's all you need to just keep walking. That's all you need to do. That's funny. But they love you. I went as Tim Legler for a day, so I didn't disappoint anybody. Um, this is interesting because it kind of worked out the way everybody thought in the East with the Bucks, the Celtics, and the Sixers. One, two, three. When you go into these playoffs with the Sixers, starting against the Nets, and then obviously the Celtics, if the Sixers make the second round. How do you feel about the Sixers' chances going into the postseason this year? I think I probably feel as good about this team as any since Joel Embiid has been there. You know, look, there's two teams at the top that we know how good they are, how deep they are. You know, one team in Milwaukee has already won a championship. Boston was in the finals a year ago. These are places that Philly's trying to get. So you know what you're facing. But I do think some of the talk most of the year about it being really a two-team race I think that was too dismissive of the Sixers. And you, you look at what they've done for really about a three-month stretch and the way they have played, you have to include them in the mix. And it's not going to be easy. Even their first-round series won't be easy. But the way Embiid has played, I think Harden, for me personally, this is probably the most enjoyable it's ever been for me watching James Harden play because I think he has found that perfect balance of facilitator and attacker. You know, Houston – that, that style, and, and, and even in Brooklyn to a certain extent, that's not ultimately sustainable in winning a championship playing that way. Well, that ball dominant by one player is predictable every time up the floor what you're going to run, no matter what the talent. This is different. This is a ver- different version of James Harden. Um, now, obviously, he's going to have to come up big for them in the postseason. He's got to be every bit as good or better than he's been in the regular season for them in the postseason. Um, and then, of course, Tyrese Maxey, I think, is a major wild card. He's a little bit inconsistent, I think, because there are times he gets quiet. But when you look at the top talent on this roster, you say, hey, I'm going to take a, a, a fighter's chance against Boston and Milwaukee if we can get 
to that point. I don't want to get past Brooklyn too fast here because that's a mistake you make as an NBA team. But John, I just feel really good about their chances. And I think it's going to come down to ultimately, and has got to be every bit the player he was in a regular season, which I think is the MVP. And Harden has to have moments where he's the best player on the floor when it really matters. You know, fourth quarter, he's going to need to be that spectacular James Harden for them to be able to have a shot at getting who went past whoever they would face in the second round. Let's stick with what you were talking about with James Harden there, because obviously last year, especially in that game six against Miami, it's almost like he didn't know what to do in that second half. He had started being a playmaker in the first half, but it seemed like there were a couple turnovers where he just didn't even go after the ball. But this year, it seems like in game, he's kind of able to decide, okay, I got to take over here for a little bit, or I got to be a facilitator. Do you see it coming with more ease this year? It has. And, and that's why I think for me, there's more pressure on him than there's ever been. And, and that's the key. How's he going to handle the pressure? Because I think he has set this up for people to expect James Harden to have a phenomenal playoff run. And the ball's going to be in his hands because as great as Embiid is, as dominant an offensive player as he is, and he might be the most overwhelming force in the league right now in, in terms of just a raw scorer, he's a center. And centers can have the ball taken out of their hands to a certain extent. I mean, Joel Embiid is not going to be able to you know, be elusive with a live handle and escape a double team and change directions multiple times with the ball the way these elite wing players do. And in a playoff series, they're Brooklyn and Boston and whoever, Milwaukee, whoever it is, they're going to get creative in how they hit him with blitzes. And each game will present different looks, but you can force the ball out of his hand. You can't really do that as much with Harden. And that's why it's so critical that he come through. So as great as he's been in a regular season, and I think he has set up even more pressure for himself now because the expectations are there for him to be great night in and night out. And he has had some head scratchers in the past in the postseason. John, there's no other way to put it. It's not just in Philly. Uh, you know, last year you mentioned Miami. It's not just that. You go back throughout James Harden's career and you can find these moments when you're watching the game and it just doesn't look like the same James Harden, the same level of aggressiveness. And, and you can live with a bad game. You can't survive lack of aggression out of that particular player with the teams that you're going to face. Yeah, and for the second time in his career, he led the league in assists. He had the highest three-point shooting percentage, uh, over 38% from three. But we have seen over the last month, month and a half, in and out struggles from three with the Achilles. And, and it's still listed on the injury report, sore Achilles. And he said it affected him for a couple months. Any concern about that going into the playoffs where you're playing every other day or almost like that? Yes, it is a concern because I think it's it's still something that's lingering. That's not the type of injury that's typically going to get better until you get sustained rest. And that's the problem now for Harden going forward. I mean, they try to manage it the best they could in the regular season. You can't manage it in the postseason. For the most part, you're playing every other night. You know, here and there, you'll get a couple of days off between games. But the level of intensity is picked up. The physicality is picked up. So he's going to be hit, held, you know, pu pushed, shoved more on his dribble and, and his ability to get to that step back three. I mean, that's really what you're talking about, you know, the flexion that you need in that particular area of your foot to separate and push back and get into your three and then get lift. 
it's definitely a concern. And, and it's it's not something that's going to feel great until he gets to the post to the you know, off season and has a chance to rest it. So yes, it's something we have to be watching for. And I think you'll see telltale signs on certain nights. Is he is he not hunting that shot as much as you would typically expect him to see? Is the lift not there? Is there a lot of front rim on his jumper? That could be an indicator that he just doesn't feel it. It's either painful, tender, or there's just not enough strength there. How about the James Harden effect on Joel Embiid this year? Because you said going into these playoffs, hey, Joel Embiid has that guy now, James Harden. And Joel had the most productive year ever as far as uh, percentage from the paint. 63% of his field goals were made from the paint. He's got that jumper from the elbow. James sets him up for that. How have you seen them come together as a duo? Well, and I talked to Doc about this a couple weeks ago. I came in and I, I did the uh, Dallas game on ESPN Radio, so I had a chance to talk to Doc before the game. And we were talking about the evolution of Joel Embiid offensively. And so, so some of this certainly is James Harden, right? And, and his ability to turn the corner, get into the paint, draw multiple guys. He's, he, I think he's the best pocket passer off ball screen of any player in the league. Um, where he can give these soft little bounce passes to Joel as he's rolling to the rim that are perfectly timed. They come up nice and high to his waist for a seven-footer. So he's got this ability to find him on the move toward the rim. That's helped him. But I think what Doc was saying, and it's true, Joel has added the ability to play from different areas of the floor and trust them in those areas where he won't turn it over. He's going to read it right. And, and a lot of times that just means go and attack what's ever in front of you. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's going to be, if I have the ball at the 18-foot top of the key, elbow, short ISO on the wing, and I start to go, and now they're coming after I've dribbled the ball. This is what Joel Embiid struggled with in the past. Once he committed to a move, and now the double team came, whether he was coming out of a spin or he was trying to change directions, and, man, there's another defender in my lap, that's when you'd see him pick it up sail one across, you know, the other side of the court out of bounds or dribble off his foot. And, and teams knew that they could get him into those situations. He doesn't really struggle with that as much anymore. He reads it better. He gets rid of it when he's supposed to. Uh, and he's just become one of the best mid-range jump shooters in the league that can go over the top of anybody smaller. So him adding all of those things to his game, I think that is really the biggest reason why we marvel at Joel Embiid every night. So here in Philly, because of the process, everyone is waiting till the Eagles get, I'm sorry, the Sixers get to the Eastern Conference Finals for the first <laughs> time in 22 years. So you got that kind of over Joel Embiid's shoulders. How about James Harden? Who do you think has more pressure? Because you talked about kind of that playoff story from other spots. I'm going to say it's, it's Harden, and, and here's why. I, I, Joel Embiid has convinced me now that he's going to do exactly what he just did in the regular season. I, I really am so convinced. You're going to see 30-plus a night. You're going to see it efficiently. He's going to get to the line 10 to 15 times every night. He's going to get you know anywhere from 10 to 15 boards. He's going to be an elite-level rim protector. I, I don't think there's any question about it. He's had some issues physically going into the postseason uh, and, and, and even during the, the postseason that, that have popped up on him that have definitely hampered him. And you felt bad for him, particularly last year, what he dealt with and taking that elbow, you know, at the end of that Toronto game and going in there with a mask. He already had other issues he was dealing with physically. So he just wasn't himself. 
there's no excuse physically for him this year. So I, I think he's going to be great. John, here's how I describe it to people that ask me about this team all the time. Of this, if this is an unfulfilling postseason run, whatever that means, if it means they lose somehow to the Nets in the first round, you know, they get taken out by, let's say, Boston in the second round in a five or six game series, the reason will not be Joel Embiid. That's that's, that's what, I, what I tell people. We'll be talking about something else. And if that's the case, well, you know what the next name on that list is going to be? It's going to be James Harden. You know, Maxi, look, he's got to play great too. I mean, he can't have these halves where he takes three shots. It just can't be. He's too good offensively to be quiet. And even the Dallas game that I called, you know, he went six minutes, seven minutes, started game, hadn't taken a shot yet. In the NBA, the first five minutes of the game, every starter, it's almost like an unwritten rule. Everyone get one up, right? Just see what it feels like. How much air is in the ball tonight, right? Just get one up. And so to watch him that night, I'm saying, that just doesn't make sense to me. A guy that's a 20-point score, he's a starter, hasn't taken a shot. He's coming out of the game for the first time. Doesn't make any sense. So there's pressure on him too. But clearly it's hard because he is so good offensively. He can be the tipping point. He can be the difference maker to get past a Boston Celtics team. If James Harden is just sensational for as many games as it takes. So that's why I think there's more pressure on him because we all kind of feel like I don't exactly know what I'm going to get. I'm not ready to go down to AC and lay some money on that. I am on Joel Embiid. I'm very confident what that's going to look like. So we will not be laying this at his feet if this doesn't go well. All right, you talked about laying some money. Okay, MVP, we see that 37 voters have announced what their pick is, and 26 of those 37 have Joel as their MVP. Are you betting that he's going to be named MVP? Yeah, I think I think it's his. You know, I've been doing this long enough to, to kind of understand there's a – there's an ebb and flow to this throughout the year, and there's a momentum that takes place with certain players. And, 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 and I, typically, I'm pretty good about knowing by the time we get to the last few weeks, who has the momentum and who has their hands around that award. And at that point, one of a few things has to happen. Once you become like the front runner, and I feel like just the talk and the chatter and the people I talk to and knowing who all's voting for this, you kind of feel like he's got his hands on it. Only three things can really happen. You get hurt, probably 15, 20 games to go. That hasn't happened. Your team falls off the map for some reason. You know, you go, you have a four and 10 stretch in a month. That hasn't happened to them. Or your production, for whatever reason, you go through a stretch, 10 games, you don't play well. Your numbers drop off at the exact same time. You know, one of the two guys that you're competing with is lighting it up every night. That hasn't happened either. So once you get that momentum, and now I think it's running through the tape with that award in your hands, and it feels like that's where the momentum is right now. It's for Joel Embiid, and the season's over. So I think he's going to get one. And you talked about his health. I mean, this really is an amazing thing because Brett Brown every year talked about our whole goal is to deliver him to the playoffs healthy, and you would have freak issues every single year. But these last two years, he's played 66 and 68 games, and he said this is the healthiest he's been. What do you think that does for him mentally? Because we've seen a drop-off at some points when he's had gastroenteritis against the Raptors. He's had the knee, he's had the back, he's had everything. What do you think this does for him mentally? Oh, I, I can't imagine how relieved he must be going in, knowing that if he's physically right, 
there's just no answer for him. And that's, that's, I think, how he feels. Where in the past, if he had something going on physically, you can imagine just even a 10%, let's say, take off of what you are as a player between the ears because you don't feel right. Well, then suddenly you, know, you, you need to pass some of that buck to some guys on your team and hope that they come through. And whether that's you know Ben Simmons against Atlanta, whether that's James Harden against Miami last year, and, and, and so that's a helpless feeling for a superstar because you want to be the guy to take this thing and jump on my back. And I know what I'm going to be. And I'm, obviously those guys need to play well. But when you're Joel Embiid and you have that kind of talent and you feel great, you want it to be about you. And he, he hasn't been able to think that way the last you know couple postseasons. Feeling that way now, the clarity that he has about how he's going to attack, that's got to be very liberating for Joel Embiid heading into the postseason. All right. Well, we almost made it through without a Ben Simmons mention. But since you brought him up, isn't it amazing how this has worked out that the Sixers are playing the Nets? But at the beginning of the year, we thought it would be Durant, Kyrie, Ben Simmons. It would be this great matchup. Isn't it amazing that he's an afterthought at this point and the Nets seem to be playing a little bit better cohesively without him? Definitely. And, and look, it, you know, it, it was obvious to me and we could, we could talk about this for days. I mean, I, I, I knew it. The last game he played in Philly that night, as he was showering before he left the arena, Wells Fargo, I'm saying, I don't think Ben Simmons can play in Philly again because of what everyone had just witnessed. And it wasn't just that game, that moment passing up the dunk. Like that's the play that became, you know, basically attached to him. It wasn't that. It was go back and look at the entire series. And, you know, four, four, uh, I think five fourth quarters, he doesn't attempt a field goal in that series. So he leaves, he moves on. I was very worried about what his future was going to be from that point on, and it's pretty much played out that way. I just don't think he's recovered psychologically. So it is really interesting that this Nets team, if you, if you said on paper, hey, Nets Sixers at any point, any round in the postseason in 2023, Going into this to, to this to the fall, last fall, you would have said, sign me up for six or seven of those because this is the most much watched series in all of basketball. If those two teams match up, well, they're matched up, but it doesn't look like that. And it's interesting because I think I think he got to the point where he became a drain on what they were trying to accomplish as an organization. So I think they are in a better place right now with him not being a part, particularly of this series because of the distraction that that would be for that team, because he's not going to be able to answer the bell. You know, some guys, you put them in this situation, this environment, they would thrive on it, right? You look at Kevin Durant going back to Oklahoma City and LeBron going back to Cleveland when he went to Miami. Let's say, come on, I got something for you. Bring it on. I don't think Ben's made up that way. So he wouldn't be able to answer the bell. It's better that he's not a part of it. Now, having said all of that, the Nets – are dangerous because they are so co cohesive. If you've been watching them play for the last month or so, it's really amazing that they did not fall off the map. Those trades took place. And I think they have so much to prove. When you get a team that plays well together, that has a chip on their shoulder, this is what you can get. They, everybody there's got something to prove. And that's why I think even this first round is going to be a major test for the Sixers. Yeah, and it's it's kind of fun for Mikhail Bridges to come back to his hometown. Obviously, his mom was very disappointed 
with the Sixers trade. And so was McHale. He was really upset. He recently revealed he went back to his hotel room and didn't go out because he was traded from the Sixers. Uh, how much do you think he has a chip on his shoulder? Oh, there's no doubt about it. And I think just, you know, even the stage that he's going to have and what he did after he went to Brooklyn. Look, I've said this about Jalen Brunson, and I think I might say the same thing about Mikhail Bridges. I missed the ceiling of a player by as much as any guy in the history of, of my broadcasting career as I did Jalen Brunson. Like, I thought, okay, yeah, nice NBA player coming out of Nova. I don't think he's quick enough. I don't think he's athletic enough. How is he going to be an elite-level point guard? He's going to be a nice, solid player because he's too smart. He's, you know, he's a winner. He's going to be fine. Are you kidding me? You know, 24, 25 at night, and now you watch the guy and you think you're going to get 30, 35 on any given night. And now Bridges, who looked like a 3 and D spot-up type shooter guy, didn't really have a lot with his handle, couldn't create his own shot, or never had to. I shouldn't say couldn't. Never had to because who he's playing with in Phoenix. Now look at this guy. So, yes, the stage coming back to Philly, getting traded on draft night, what he has become as a player, this is his first series where he's going in. He is the dominant offensive threat on that team. He has never been in that role before, so I can't imagine how excited he must be when you add all of that up um, and the environment that it's going to provide for him. So he's ready to – he wants to stamp it, pound the gavel. Look, I'm a star. and You prove that by what you do in the postseason. So, yeah, he's pretty excited about this opportunity. Yeah, we've seen some games where he's put up 42. It's really been awesome to see. How about the Nets? Do they have any answer for Joel Embiid? I know you got Nick Claxton starting out there, but, I mean, do they have any answer to slow down Joel? No, and I don't think anybody in the league really does. You know, There was a time when you felt like certain teams personnel-wise could throw something at him that, that could at least make him less efficient. Because that's all you're talking about with these, with these guys on this level. It's not – we're going to try to, you know, hold him to 20 a night. You're not doing that. He's, he's just too good. He gets to the line too much. It's, he's going to get 30 every night. He might have, you know, a couple of 40-point games. But in getting those, can we make him less efficient? Can we make him shoot 40% from the field to do that? Or on certain nights, can we hold him to, you know, six free throw attempts, which I think is impossible. This is the way you used to think about him, and some teams had the personnel to do it. I don't think anybody does anymore. Claxton is a very good player. He's very, he's very active. He's long, you know, 180 pounds soaking wet. And when you put Joel Embiid's shoulder in his sternum, the air is going to leave his body in the low post. So it's not about Claxton. It's not about anybody else you could throw at him. It's about scheme. It's about mixing up the coverages, the double teams, the blitzes. Where are they coming from? When are they coming? Uh, you know, how often? Do you give them different looks in the first half than you do later? It's game-to-game adjustments. It's going to all be about the double teams on him and your success and making him give it up when you want him to. And then, you know, if you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're in a Brooklyn Net uniform, you got your fingers crossed that, you know, guys like DeAnthony Melton and George Niang and Shake Milton, Tyrese Maxey don't shoot well from the three. That's really what the game plan is going to be. And if they are shooting well from the three, you just can't deal with this team. There's too much that you have to deal with with the top three guys. You still want some role players hurting you and becoming impact players from the three-point line. Now you're, you're in trouble. And I think that's going to be the Nets' entire strategy, force Philly to shoot threes. Tobias Harris, I should have mentioned in that group as well.
So how long is this series going with the Nets? You know, here's, here's how I always look at this when you get asked to pick number of games, right? So sometimes you say four. Four. You're saying basically there is no reason that this team should be on the floor with the other team, right? That, that's what you're saying in a best of seven because all these teams have great players. You say five, you're like, okay, I'm certain this team's going to win, but I'll give them a game, give them a token game, probably game three when they change venues. If you say six, you're saying, yes, this is a better team, but this is going to be a fight. If you say seven, you're saying this is a coin flip. So I'm going to go six, John. I think that this is going to be a fight. I think Brooklyn is good enough to like maybe get a split in the first two. Philly goes back and gets the split, and then maybe Philly wins the next two, like something along those lines. Philly's a better team. They should win this series. It's not going to be easy. And, and I also think the weight of past playoff failures, Wells Fargo, weighs on this team at times. And that's what we need to see because we all know, John, listen, you just lost in the Super Bowl, okay? The Phillies lost in the World Series. From the city made the NCAA tournament. Philly's off to a bad start again this year. Sixers time, right? So the fan base, the whole city, right? You can feel it when things start to turn at home, particularly if you're a favorite. And that's what I think can have an effect a little bit in this series as well. So how does Philly handle the weight sets in, right? And that heaviness that we've all experienced being in that building. How do they handle those moments? That's what's going to determine how long this series goes. Yeah, and Tim, that's a great point. Doc Rivers this week has said over and over, we welcome that pressure, and he knew what he was getting into because Brett Brown had gotten this team to the second round of the playoffs several times. So when you look at the way the playoffs are set up, you're looking at a Sixers team that could once again go out in the second round because they have to play Boston in the second round. And – Yet, they were the third best team in the NBA all year. Does that matter to Philly, though? It's all about advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals and getting to the NBA Finals, right? 100%. And that, that's why I was actually disappointed in something Joel Embiid said when he said it's Conference Finals. Like, that's you know, we got to get to the Conference Finals. I was surprised he didn't say championship. Because what you're really saying is, look, if you're saying conference finals, to me, Boston and Milwaukee are looking each other dead in the eye. You, you, know, you, you, can, you can nitpick both of those teams and, and tell me and make a debate and argument who you think is better. I'm telling you, I could lay out a great case for either team. That's how deep both teams are. So if you're saying we can beat the second-round team, should you also be saying then we could beat the team in the conference finals too? So I was a little disappointed. I thought he didn't set the bar high enough by saying it's finals. And really, if you say that, you should be saying championship because the two best teams in the league, you just got past. That's how I feel. I think the two best teams in the NBA are Milwaukee and Boston. And unfortunately for Philly, they're both in the Eastern Conference. It's just the way it worked out this year. So you got to climb both of those rungs on the ladder. Well, then why not go ahead and set the bar as I'll be disappointed if we don't win a championship this year. That's where I think he should have said it um, because I feel like conference finals makes it still seem like, Hey, we're quite not quite on the category of, you know, being able to beat both of those teams, but hopefully we can beat one. That wasn't enough for me. And I'm not trying to criticize Joel Embiid. I just think he, he should have that much belief in himself. 
And, and what you're saying is, hey, man, if we get past one of those, the other one's the same, basically the same team. So, yeah, let's get past both of those teams and let's win an NBA championship. And I think that is where their mindset should be. But very important with this team in particular and, and, and some of the history of the pressure in the postseason, what they dealt with, it's one, literally, it's cliche, but it literally is one game at a time. Starting with Brooklyn, let's play some clean basketball. Let's get off to a good start in that series. So you got the Sixers beating the Nets. I think most people do. And, and Legs, when, when I saw the Sixers and Celtics play, I mean, look, I don't think the Celtics have a real answer for Joel Embiid. But then again, I don't think the Sixers have an answer for a bunch of players. I mean, when you look at the athleticism of Tatum, Brown, then you've got Derek White, you throw in Brogdon, Marcus Smart, all these guys. Is it the biggest challenge out of all the teams the Sixers would face having to defend the athleticism and the ability of those players? I don't, you know, look, I, I, I think it's splitting hairs between them and Milwaukee because Milwaukee, what they could do to you with the number of guys that can hurt you from the three-point line in Boston as well. I, you know, I said, I said the West is going to be determined by 18 feet. The East is going to be determined from the three-point line. And that doesn't mean a beat's not critical because he's going to get his. So is Tatum. So is Giannis. That's not ultimately where those series will be won. It's going to be won by the supporting cast making threes. And Milwaukee and Boston are capable of bombing you out of the building from the three-point line. So I think either of those teams are equally difficult to defend. Here's why I think Boston is, is just a notch above the Sixers. When you look at the top guys, and let's just assume that you know, Harden and Embiid cancel out Tatum and Brown for the most part, right? You're, you're talking about a, roughly 60 a night. That's kind of where you're going to be with those guys, 50 to 60. Maxi, definitely you know, that next guy that's capable of having big scoring nights. Three of those guys. Marcus Smart is capable of having, you know, a six or seven made three type of game. And then to me, the real difference between the two teams are the next two guys. Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon. You alluded to those guys. The reason, John, is because they're, they're, they're not just complimentary players. They have stretches in games and even on the playoff stage where for an entire quarter, they can be the best player on the floor. Who do the Sixers have beyond those top three guys that can be that? Nobody. I mean, Niang can string, string together two or three threes, and you know what's going to happen? They're going to stay home and deny him the ball, and then he's done scoring probably for that quarter or that half. Same with guys like Shake Milton, DeAnthony Melton. Same. Brogdon and White, because of their ability to handle the ball and run ball screen, and they've got mid-range shots. They can shoot the ball from deep. They can get to the rim. I just think having two more dynamic ball handling guys that can score or create, that to me is the difference between them and Philly. And if they get to that series, we'll be talking about that after games. Tonight it was Brogdon. Let's go back to the third quarter. Look at Malcolm Brogdon here because maybe Tatum was struggling at the time. They have two other guys that can go and be great. And I think that's where the drop-off on Philly's roster is significant. Yeah, you make a great point. What do you think Jalen McDaniels can do? How, how, how important of an addition do you think he is with his uh, length and, and his athletic ability? Enormous. I mean, you, you know, you need length when you're talking about playing, uh, whether it's bridges, 
then you get into the next round and you got to play Tatum and Brown potentially, then obviously what you're going to deal with with a guy like Giannis or a Chris Middleton, who's six, eight, you know, great mid range player. You need to have length and lateral quickness. And he gives you both of those things. Doc was raving about him when I talked to him a few weeks ago. Um, it was a really, really important pickup for them. Now the key is going to be defensively. We're going to, we're definitely going to see his impact. He's going to, he's going to make things a little bit more difficult for the guys I mentioned. He is going to be, can he also give you some punch? Because if you're on the floor, you're going to play, you know, 20, 25 minutes, 28 minutes, maybe on certain nights, maybe even more if he's really defending well. You can't be on the other end a non-factor. So step into some threes, shoot it with confidence, get out in transition, hopefully get him a couple of balls thrown ahead where he can get to the rim. He needs to give him something on the other end of the floor too, but I do think he's a significant factor. Yeah, and, and as we wrap this up, I mean, when I look at the three-point shooting that you talked about, I think that's a great point about where those series are going to be won. I mean, the fact that the Sixers led the NBA this year in three-point shooting percentage, over 38%, I think that's huge. But Doc Rivers is going to have some decisions to make in these playoffs, especially with a guy like George Niang, who, yeah, he can get hot from three, but you suffer defensively. So he's going to have some interesting decisions to make with his rotations. It's such a great point, and, and it's, it's kind of where I've been thinking with the Sixers all along. He has more buttons to push than any other coach in the Eastern Conference because, yeah. honestly, if you look at Milwaukee and Boston, their rotation is so set almost on, on, on auto-dial, right, because they've got greater depth. You don't hesitate. No matter what Derek White did for two games, Derek White's going in at the same time in game three, you're saying a Brogdon too, right? You're going to give them the same minutes, same opportunities, no matter what they've done. With Doc, it's a little different. You know, if you if you go to, you know, shake Milton in game one early, you know, and he goes 0 for 5, I don't know if you're going to go back there in game two because he's got, I think, a number of guys on that bench and filling out the rotation. You know, Tobias. Tobias is really struggling in a couple of games, and you've got McDaniels there. You might want to give up some of that offense to get more defense. If if Tobias is struggling, maybe Daniels gets the same offense and better defense. So Doc has more cards to play, and that might make it his most important coaching job he's ever had since he got to Philly because on a given night, that rotation is going to look different depending on what the first half looked like, how guys looked at him. Are they confident tonight? Are they you know making shots? Or I can go to him in the second half. If not, I might have to go somewhere else in the second half. I don't think, you know, Budenholzer has to deal with that. Mazzola doesn't have to deal with that. They've got their lineup set. They can trust those guys. They know they'll bounce back. I think Doc is a little bit more of a gray area once you get beyond the top three. Yeah, great points. And I tell you, Tim, I love talking to you. You got me fired up for these playoffs, Sixers-Nets, and then what's looking like Sixers-Celtics. And by the way, every summer you hold a camp, and it's really cool because kids can come out learn the game, get better at the game. Where is this going to be this year? It's in Pittman, New Jersey, John, not far from the bridges, right? It's there in South Jersey, a total turf facility right there in Pittman. It's a phenomenal facility, five hard courts under one roof. Um, and I've had it now. It's my 16th year. Very proud of what it's become. We sell it out every single year. It's a high-level teaching camp. You can be a beginner picking up a ball for the first time, or we've had Division One players come through. I mean, that's the range. And I will cater each thing that you're doing according to your skill level. And, and that's what I take a lot of pride in. The staff's incredible. 
Some of the best high school coaches you're going to see in South Jersey come out. Uh, boys and girls, age 8 to 16, any level, high-level teaching. It's July 31st to August 3rd. Um, and the best place to find information about it is go to the website, timleglerbasketballcamp.com. And uh, get in there and get signed up early because we last year we shut it off a few weeks out from camp because we just had no more capacity. So I appreciate you letting me mention that because I'm really proud of what it's become. My favorite week of the year. I love teaching the game. That is awesome. I, I think it is a fantastic experience. And and as, as I wrap this up, Tim, I mean, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the Sixers in these playoffs because if they play really well but have a second-round exit again, you know, James Harden ain't playing on that $33 million player option. So is he going to get a max deal with the Sixers? Or, you know, you heard these rumblings. They were leaked or planted during the season that he may have interest in going back to Houston. Um, Doc Rivers' future, we'll see about that. So this is going to be fascinating. There's no doubt. It, it, this, this thing is bursting at the seams, John, right? The pressure, the internal pressure, and everybody's feeling it. And Bede's feeling it because he hasn't been as good as he needed to be in a, in a postseason, and, and some of it not his his you know his fault because of injuries. James Harden, we've talked about, has had moments kind of scratch your head. Tyrese Maxey, if you want to go ahead, and I talked about Bridges pounding that gavel and saying I'm, I'm I've arrived. Maxey, no better stage than the postseason. Doc, obviously, a lot to prove. I talked about the number of decisions he's going to have. So he's going to be scrutinized every night, maybe in a different way than a lot of these coaches. There's an awful lot at stake. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to pull off two upsets to win the East. And that's, let's be realistic about it. So if they play Boston to a seven game series and they lose on the road in a game seven in Boston in a fourth quarter, one possession game, can you really be that angry with the Philadelphia 76ers? They're playing a better team and they're going to be playing on the road. So they can do it, but you're right. A lot of guys trying to figure out a lot of postseason pressures and we'll be talking about it every single night. Yeah, we will. We look forward to seeing you on ESPN. And, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Could there be a future job title for Tim Legler, general manager of LaSalle? Because I'm seeing. I saw that. I saw that. Baker Dunleavy back at Villanova, general manager of the basketball teams because of NIL and the transfer portal. I mean, you're going to have to have general managers at all of these college programs now. You said that I was scrolling through the news. I guess it was last night. I'm laying there, kind of going to go to bed. I'm scrolling through like I normally do reading the headlines. And I'm like, wait, what did that say? General manager for Villanova. <laughs> so I had to go back and, and read it full. First of all, I kind of, I've been so busy with the NBA, I kind of lost track of the college stuff. And I was like, did Baker Dunleavy get fired? Like, what? So I go and look. I'm like, no, he's leaving to become the general manager of a college program. It's a very interesting way to put it. I think it's ingenious because it's 100% spot on. It's more about business in that role because of the NIL and obviously the transfer portal. I mean, what have we got? 1,200, 1,300 kids in the transfer portal. The challenges that come with coaching now. Uh, can you, you know, can I keep a kid if I can't? Where am I getting kids? You're scouring other programs. It's crazy what it's become. And so to have someone kind of in there to just manage that so that the coaches can focus more on recruiting and coaching, I think it's an ingenious move. And you're going to see more and more programs go that route. Well, the rest of the big five, they need to get it going. We need to get the big five back. I agree, man. It's, 
I, you know, that's, that's tough when I think it's what the first time in 45 years or something, nobody from the city was in the, was in the big dance, man, that's, that's not the uh, big five that I'd certainly remember that I came to play when I left Richmond, Virginia to, to come to Philly. It wasn't like that. And it hasn't been like that for the most part. So yes, that hoping for all these schools to, to bounce back and, and get to that next level next year, we get a couple of teams in. Well, I'd love to see general manager Tim, Tim Legler someday. I mean, I think that would be great. Tim, we appreciate your time. ESPN, we, we're going to look forward to seeing you throughout the playoffs. Keep crushing it, man. Your breakdowns, your analysis, your insight, keep crushing it, man. You're awesome at it. We appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, John. I appreciate, I appreciate it very much. And I'm sure everybody's going to be hearing me quite a bit on uh, the Fanatic. I'll be on there talking about these games. So I'm uh, looking forward to breaking it down. And I can't wait till Saturday to sit down and look at that slate of games, man. We got some very fascinating matchups in the first round, and it's the best time of the year for me. So I appreciate you having me on. You got it. It all starts with Sixers next, Saturday, 1 o'clock. Thanks a lot, Tim. You got it, John. Oh, I'm so flagrant.